to The Bill Barnwell Show. I am Bill Barnwell. And today, so excited to have this guest making his debut on the show. Wanted to have him on for a while. Have learned so much from watching his stuff over the last couple of years. Mentioned it in my columns. Mentioned it on here. Wanted to have the man himself on. And then the, the perfect alignment of stuff came up. I feel like he's gotten viral over the past couple of weeks, making movies about one particular offense. <laughs> and then today, the biggest story in the NFL is Justin Fields basically blaming at least a fair amount of what's gone wrong for the Bears offense this year on the coaching staff. So we're going to start there. Joining us today, former NFL quarterback, PhD, coach himself, a man of many talents, the head, the leader, the uh, I can't think of the right word. The person in charge of the QB School YouTube channel. It's JT O'Sullivan. Mr. O'Sullivan, how are you? Bill, what's up, man? That's quite the uh, quite the intro. I'm not sure if I can live up to that. But yeah, it's uh, I'm excited. It's time perfectly. Tis the time of year, man. People are panicking. We've got all sorts of issues across the landscape of the quarterback position. So fired up. Yeah. And I, I think... We're going to try and hit some of that today, not just about the Bears, maybe also what we can learn or apply to the rest of the league from the Bears and what's gone wrong with them. And I have to admit, there's so much to get to here that I was a little nervous. I didn't know how I was going to start. Like I thought for really all day before that press conference, how am I going to bring this in? Like, what am I going to lead with? And then Justin Fields, very nice man, decided to do me a favor and just give me a lead to start off with immediately. And so I'm going to read you the quote here in full. Um, when Justin Fields talked about how he wanted to think less uh, and sort of play more like himself, he was asked, thinking less, what caused you to think too much? And he responded, you know, could be coaching, I think. At the end of the day, they're doing their job and they're giving me what to look at. But at the end of the day, I can't be thinking about that when the game comes. I prepare myself throughout the week. And then when the game comes, it's time to play free at that point, thinking less and playing more. And so I, I want to start there because you have so many different perspectives here. You've been a quarterback in the NFL. You've coached at multiple levels. You, you have... You've been on both sides of this coin, I'm sure. And so let's just start there. When you hear that from Justin Fields and, and you relate it to what you've seen on the film over the past couple of weeks, do you feel like he's being overcoached? Do you feel like he's being undercoached, just coached poorly? Like, like, like what is Justin Fields coming out and saying that spark for you? I mean, it, it sparks a number of different things. I, I think the overarching thing of it would be the positive side of it for me would just be the self-awareness element mm -hmm. and whether he intentionally tried to you know essentially bus drive his coaches there i don't think it was necessarily as harsh as it comes across when you just see the snippet of it mm -hmm. i think when you see it in the full context of him trying to rationalize basically what his coaches are doing i think you could certainly make the argument that the coaches are failing him if that is the outcome that he feels and so what i mean by that is I think a coach's role is a number of different things, but essentially your job is to put your best players in their best position to be successful as consistently as possible. And so for a quarterback coach, usually, or a coordinator or play caller, you're given a quarterback a lot of information, but it's not gonna be a cookie cutter menu. It's gonna be different for every quarterback. And so a young quarterback who maybe certainly is struggling right now, you wanna make sure that those guardrails and that scaffolding 
makes as much sense as possible, is as clean and concise and precise that it does allow him to go out and play fast like he's talking about. You don't want him sitting back in the pocket thinking, oh, Jesus, what, what's my drop on this? What's my read on this? You do have to be able to play. And I think you can call games and create game plans that can put you in a lane that that's more sustainable, certainly than what they've done up until this point. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, the reality is, is this is going to get significant play today. You know, the next few cycles here about essentially the what craziness is going on in that building right now. And it's 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 not great that it came out like this, I think. But what could become the outcome of this, I think, you know, you have to have those difficult conversations in the building. Mm-hmm. Certainly, it feels like that building is in flux. I mean, that is a team where the defensive coordinator has left the building and the head coach, Benny Rufloos, is not willing to say whether he still works for the organization. It, uh, the quotes from, I think it was Dan Weeder, where the, uh, one of the Bears beat reporters basically said after week one, he'd never seen a building more shook about one loss and one game early in the season than he had from that Bears loss to the Packers in week one. And you know, in watching your extensive breakdowns of the Bears' offense over the past couple of weeks, there's plenty of players, there's plenty plenty of, of individual issues, which we'll, I'm sure we'll get to. But in terms of the coaching staff and what they're doing to build an offense to Justin Fields' strengths, he's averaging five yards per throw in the air. He has four designed runs in two weeks. He has a sneak, a quarterback sweep, a zone read keeper, which we will talk about because I have questions, and a draw. And I, I, I think from, as a layman, being naive, being just a journalist, I can't imagine that is the offense that plays best to Justin Fields' strengths. And so I want to be rational. I want to try and find a reasonable answer. From your perspective, why do you think the Bears have constructed this offense in such a way over the first couple of weeks, given what we've seen uh, on the tape? You know, I can't make sense of it either, and and I don't I don't know if they have intentionally created the offense that has been called and tried to be executed the first two weeks. I I think for whatever reason, the game has dictated them to maybe potentially get away, hopefully, from what they want to be or the best version of themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you look back on last year and see when you saw the kind of transformation or the shift, and it, and it did happen in my mind at least, pretty quickly for the Bears as far as when they changed offensively to allow Justin to flourish in the run game and to become a little bit more dynamic of a vertical threat running downhill. I don't, if they made a strategic choice to go away from that, I think they've been proven up until this point that that is a mistake. Mm -hmm. And so I think that they, because they showed that they changed so quickly last year, it can happen again this year. Now there's no you know, besides for that, the precedent of it is really tough to go from the level that Justin is playing at and has played at really through throughout the kind of series of his starts to think that it is going to get significantly better anytime soon. I just can't make sense of how you couldn't have a more robust quarterback run game. It's not like it is, you know, a decade ago mm-hmm. or two decades ago where you're really hesitant to run the quarterback and you'd have no idea how to do it and you'd have to go out and ask all these other coaches and systems. Everyone in college football and many NFL teams have comprehensive, robust quarterback run games that have significant answers for mm-hmm. both inside, outside, zone, gap, edge, gadget, draw. There's so many different ways to run the quarterback nowadays to not have those answers and not have it early in a game plan is essentially unexcusable. 
I, I, I really can't fathom it. I, it, it. It's so bizarre to me because we've seen other quarterbacks around the NFL have the, that sort of expansive run game um, with Jalen Hurts in Philadelphia, Lamar Jackson in Baltimore, most recently, of course, Anthony Richardson so far this year in Indianapolis. It's not as if, like you said, this is a decade ago where there's no proof of concept where the idea of running you know, your quarterback 10 times a game on you know, a counter or bash or something would be crazy. And and you would ha- you, you would get some pushback on it. Even a decade ago, I mean, you could have the Niners and, and the Greg Roman offense with Colin Kaepernick, you know, had been successful. But it, it just seems, given their limitations, given the inefficiency, the ineffectiveness of their individual players, and given that the offensive line has not played relatively well, that they've been very inconsistent at best over the first couple weeks of the season, it would seem like reclaiming the numbers advantage and having fields be you know part of the run game would make everyone's life easier i I absolutely agree and i would even add and i think this makes it worse but even the few times that they have run him it looks like they don't quite understand the numbers game because Mm -hmm. they're running themselves out of the matchup with trying to get like trick emotions or trying to like have deception with jet sweep motions it's just at some point it is just math and if anybody's going to play defense against Justin Fields with a middle safety, you have the math to run the quarterback. Mm-hmm. And it, it is, it, I know sometimes it might be hard to, to kind of get that that simple, but that is the math. And so to not take advantage of that at this point is, is you, 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 they're just not going to be able to function anytime soon without that. But it, it would be one thing if it was just that. But then you add in what they looks like they're trying to like put him in a box with the drop back game and have him do things that he certainly doesn't look comfortable doing and calling the same kind of concepts over and over and him not seeing it. It just, you know, you can go back not very far and realize Justin Fields can spin the ball. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was an accurate quarterback in college. Now you can make the argument he's throwing to wide open guys against inferior competition, which I think is a fair comment, mm-hmm. but he can spin it. And the, just the way it's coming off of his hand now, it, it nothing looks the same. And so it's, it's you know, there's so many layers of issues that I think it makes it that much harder to kind of get to a solution that looks like it might be sustainable. Right. It feels like there's not one fix they can make. I mean, the quarterback run game would help. Certainly, it might be one of the first steps. I'm going to ask you about, you know, what steps might be the best ones to, to pursue um, later on. But there's a play that came up, one, one of the quarterback run plays I mentioned that I want to bring up because I think it, it, it hits at so many of the issues that you repeatedly see here with this offense that you've brought up. And it's the the play where he kept it on the zone read play, um, where he's reading a conflict defender. He's reading the defensive end to his left, to the right side of the defense. And his first step on that play is to look to the right to see if he wants to throw a screen. And the point you made in your breakdown is by the time he gets back to looking at the left side, he can't even see the conflict defender. He has to guess basically because there's no time. And I think, you know, when I look at something like that, I think is that Justin trying to do multiple things that really he can't do, or is it just the coaching staff asking too much of Justin? Um, which do you think is more likely? I, I would say it's the coach's responsibility to put some sort of, actionable play together that the quarterback can flourish in. Now, I would also say that most quarterbacks, and maybe not young quarterbacks, but a a quarterback that really understands what he's really good at and how this thing works at the elite level, will push back to some of that stuff and be like, hey, I can't do this on both sides. This is not gonna work. 
or ask for clarity. And so I, I think that that play is, it's a perfect example of Justin not quite understanding the intent of that play. So for me, that play is what I consider in the RPO world a access throw to the front side, so to the side of the run. If they are pressuring us or we have numbers or grass, catch it, throw it out there. It's like a pre-snap. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do post-snap. You have to make that determination pre-snap. And then post-snap, you're on the conflict defender, the C-gap defender, the defensive end, and you read them out. Well, when you're in shotgun, you can't take your eyes down and then catch it and then look to your pre-snap read to confirm it and then get back to your post-snap conflict defender and make a play. That's just not going to work, man. And so that's on everybody. But at the end of the day, Justin has to execute the play. He needs to do that pre-snap work. Then he needs to have his eyes in the correct stop spot post-snap to be able to operate. Now, if he can't do it consistently, we can't ask him to do it. And so unfortunately, it's probably all of those things, which sounds like kind of a you know a garbage can of issues. And, it, and there's no easy fix other than, yo, let's just simplify that. And so how you would simplify that is you take off the, the access read, Maybe you get in 12 personnel. Maybe you put a wing over there. Maybe you take some sort of issue so you don't have a hot issue to that front side or pressure issue to make sense of it. And so it's not just on Justin to say like, hey, I got to stand up to this offense coordinator who's you know been a coach in the league that I'm not sure I have the authority to kind of say that. He doesn't realize that he can dictate those types of things yet potentially. You know, So it's, it's messy, man. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there is no competition. And right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number 8, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a Jets Pizza location near you. Again, try Jets Signature 8-Corner Pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's number 8, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. That's what I was going to ask you. I mean, early in your career, you played for a lot of coaches, a lot of legendary coaches. Mike Martz comes to mind. You know, whether you were a backup, whether you were starting, how, how do you handle that? Like, like, did you have a coach who sort of gave you permission to challenge him? Did you feel like you had to learn it from somebody else? Because I feel like that would be a, a, a difficult process to kind of go through. It is a difficult process to navigate because it is one of those things, too, where you come into the league, and I think most players are used to the authoritarian kind of coach. Like they're the authority, they have the answers. Where in the league, I think it's a lot more collegiate. You know, the, these are my colleagues. We're on a first name basis. This is weird. You know, like, okay, we're working together, we're crafting this thing together. What are you comfortable with? Those types of things. And so if you're not in a safe environment to be able to push back, and I've certainly been around a lot of strong willed coordinators, head coaches, even position coaches where those aren't easy conversations, but you need somebody on staff who can be kind of your conduit mm -hmm. to say like, hey man, you know, I'm doing too much here. Like this is not gonna work for me. I know for me, the, an example I always use all the time is in empty, so two open edges, uh, or five person protection. I never liked having hots on both sides. Mm -hmm. I was around some quarterbacks who that wasn't an issue. Well, for me, I essentially couldn't function because I would take the snap and like check both sides and I'd be like, well, what's the read? You know, like I'm, I jacked my first read as opposed to closing off one side, realizing, okay, if I'm hot, I have an answer. So just being 
knowing your game and where your kind of gaps are and blind spots to feel comfortable and play fast, it doesn't seem like Fields has that kind of narrowed down yet. It feels like you can almost see the pressure getting to him, like the pressure, not just of the past past pressure, but more so just the pressure of functioning within the offense. You bring up fields, you know, skipping reads or, you know, sort of getting from A to C because A's not there and he's feeling frantic and his footwork might not be where it needs to be. And he's drifting a bit. And, you know, how, how do you, as a quarterback, prevent that from happening where you're panicking and just going to, okay, well, you know, I, I, I think C or D is more likely to be open, so I'm going to skip straight to that. How, how do you get that that confidence to work through your progression correctly? Cool. There's no easy answers here. You know, uh, I think it takes it takes a lot of work. It's a lot of off-season work. It's a lot of, you know, understanding the timing and rhythm of what an NFL precision passing game looks like for most organizations. It's being comfortable in all of those spaces. And then the, the other part of it, is it's trusting your protection. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that's about knowing your toolkit, knowing where you can change things, where you can feel protected. But then it's not just like, okay, uh, you know, we've got five one-on-one blocks. We got everybody blocked up. Well, five one-on-one blocks is not a recipe for success in the NFL. <laughs> you know, you, I, I say a lot on, on the channel, you know, the best kind of pass protection is having as many double teams as possible. Mm-hmm. You wanna create as many double teams as possible. And so realizing that, hey, if we got five one-on-one blocks, you know, I maybe have a hitch and a half. I got to get the ball out. I got to get the ball out quickly as opposed to, you know, it looks like Justin plays a little bit kind of, ah, I don't want to make sure I don't have a turnover here or something silly and now I'm late and now I'm, you know, I got to move and now I'm getting decapitated. And so it, it, it can be all of those things that when you put them together like that, it feels like you're in just this kind of rough stew of, of can't make sense of what the hell I'm supposed to do with the ball. And you can see them try to create guardrails for him. And you know, I think the easy answer is all these screens and kind of get the ball out quickly. Well, you know, those are great when they hit in the preseason. They're not great when you're calling them three times in a row and the defense is yelling out what the hell the play is. And so you gotta find a sweet spot for being able to use quick game, move the launch point, do all these other things that you can do to help, you know, a quarterback who's maybe struggling with some of that trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in the second video, you there was a running joke how often they went back to hitches because it was the one concept that seemed to work uh, throughout the game. And hey, it's good to have a concept that works, but you want to have more than one concept that you can reliably run and get more than six yards. Yeah, hitches are tough, man. <laughs> That's a <laughs> nice, nice way of putting it relative to uh, what you said in the video. But I, what I find so interesting about about this breakdown is uh, I'm not typically thinking about offensive architecture in the big picture. I'm not thinking about, you know, how are you building a playbook? How are you building uh, a call sheet? How are you building, you know, what you're going to have on, on on your plate for a Sunday? And what I find so interesting about watching the Bears so closely now through your breakdowns is that you'll have a play where you'll sit there and rewind the tape three or four times and have absolutely no idea why a concept is being run a particular way. It's never been run that way in the NFL. You'll have guys running, you know, not even where it's like the guys running wrong routes or guys ending up in the same place, but just, you know, whether it, it I'm trying to think of a good example, but just the idea that uh, a passing concept is being run in a particular way that just does not make sense to you based on all you've seen and all you've you've watched. And then 
two plays later, you'd be like, hey, this, that was a great concept. That were, you know, that, that was really nice. And, and I think that's the part that I find so difficult is how is it possible that you have a coaching staff, an offensive architecture, where you can go from, I've never seen that and that makes no sense and it's terrible to, oh, that was a really good design in the course of the same series or the same quarter. Yeah, I mean, I think that probably speaks more towards the coordination of the offense. And I mean, you know, it's always easy when things are struggling to kind of throw the coordinators under the bus. But I think the Bears film is a kind of a, a, a nice example of that because there are just too many times where you see guys standing in the same area or running the same route. Or I think the one that jumps off the top of my mind is the first week. Uh, it looked like the offensive line, they were in the red zone. Mm-hmm. The offensive line looked like they were pass protecting. The tight end was looked like he was run blocking. Everybody else kind of looked like they were kind of running fades. And yes. Justin looked like he was like rolling out and took a terrible sack. And it was just like, you know, that's a bad JV play. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's no way around it. That That's disjointed. And so that can't happen ever. And it happened, you know, not to that extreme, but it's happened multiple times in both of these first couple games. So either the teaching... They're either asking too much, these guys can't retain it, it's not making sense how they're communicating it or studying it or practicing it because they're not able to do anything clean on you know quarter after quarter after quarter. You're looking for no types of mental errors as a player. And to have so many receivers in the same spot, so many guys kind of covering each other up, so many issues in pass protection, it, none of it makes sense to someone like me who's trying to just make sense of, hey, what even is this play? You know, if, if there are multiple plays where we can't say, hey, I don't even understand where he's supposed to be looking, let alone making sense of what this play is and what we're trying to attack, you know, it's probably not a great sign. I'm not pretending like I have all the answers at all by any yeah. means, but I can kind of usually understand the intent of what we're trying to attack. And so to have multiple plays like that, it just feels high schooly and, and bad high schooly. That's no shade to high school coaches. I've been around a lot of good high school coaches where they, they have comprehensive strategic plans that are attacking multiple layers and setting things up. And you just don't see that right now from the Chicago Bears. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, to your point, like if you're going to be a high school coach, you're going to have limited practice time. You're going to have, you know, uh, high school players as opposed to pro players. You're going to keep things simpler in most cases. And that's typically going to play to your player's strengths. And it feels like this offense, you know, whatever complexity it has, does not benefit these players. They don't get more out of the offense being more complex. They seem to get less out of it. Yeah, abs- you know, I, I totally agree. It, it looks like there are, and I, and I get it, that they've certainly had some issues up front as far as who's there, health, etc. But it's not just that protection unit. It's not just the run blocking unit. It's the perimeter. It's guys running the same route, standing in the same space. It, it, you just don't see that across the league damn near ever. And to see it in back-to-back weeks to start a season with guys who are supposed to be the starters, the upgraded unit for this you know, offense, mm-hmm. it's got to be you know, disheartening to, to Fields and company just to see, man, we're obviously failing mm-hmm. somewhere. It's either the plan is too big, we can't handle this mm-hmm. kind of uh, information, we're not teaching it correctly, we're not practicing it correctly, Things aren't making sense when we're calling it. The scheme, the system is disjointed. There are so many potential blind spots that outsiders, you know, you know, we can only look at the film and say, hey, this is not up to the standard of what Sunday football is. 
I my favorite bit. I'll be honest. This is the fanboy in me. My favorite oh. bit is uh, you you accusing the tight ends coach of getting getting plays in the offense in the red zone strictly for eighty five, so we can run you know ISOs and uh, just basically run the uh, Tony Gonzalez route tree. Um, you know, uh, I, it's funny to me, but I also wonder like, do you think? In terms of the non-fields personnel, in terms of the receivers, the running backs, the tight ends they have, do you think they're calling an offense for players they don't really have when you actually look at what they can do and not do on the film? I mean, yeah, yes. You know, but, but the other thing is I, I don't think, you know, if you, if you get through my stuff with this, I, you know, I, have, I throw a lot of like what I consider funny shade at a lot of these guys just because I don't think they're as good as they're, you know, the national perception of what that mm-hmm. upgraded unit was for Justin Fields. And so when you, you know, you try to create these opportunities for these guys to win and maybe the tight end can't create any separation, you know, and maybe the number two receiver, you know, is showing terrible effort in the first week of the season or, you know, doesn't create any separation anywhere else on the field. Those types of things, those are tough situations. I've been in huddles before where you're like, you look around and you're like, Oh baby, here we go. You know, like it's <laughs> like I'm here with you, but like, come on, fellas. You know, like let's let's separate at the top. Mm-hmm. Those types of things are not great feelings, and so I think you can you can try to kind of bend and mold how you put people in certain spaces to be successful. But at some point, you know, you got to be. Uh, you, it's really hard to win consistently unless you have some guys who can create space and win one on ones consistently. You know, give you opportunities to throw and the trust that's baked into that process is not something that's easily earned in the league. And it certainly doesn't look like it's coming together in any sort of like cogent plan for the Bears mm-hmm. and that offense. Right. And I think, you know, beyond the play concepts, beyond simply this is what this play was drawn up on paper to look like, you have to talk a lot about the individual execution of those concepts. Like you said, receivers ending up in the same spot, which could be bad design, could be someone running the wrong route. Um, you talk about the offensive line, and it's not just one player, it's multiple players not getting the depth they need to pass off stunts or blocks or um, don't want to pick on poor Colcomet again, but the tight end being too impatient to wait for his blockers on a screen. Um when it's so pervasive, not just in one position, but across multiple positions on the field, do you put that more on, on the head coach and, and the sort of the, the broader people in charge than the individual position coaches? Ooh. Uh, you know, I, I probably start all the way at the top as far as, you know, <laughs> the owner, I say, this, I say this. Well, yeah, everyone, but like in jest, you know, I'm making air quotes. You can't see me, but like the team builders, Yep. you know, that, there, you know, those decisions certainly impact, you know, what you can do as far, I always think of offensively as we're trying to create as many of explosive plays as possible. Mm-hmm. And we just, when you don't have a lot of explosive cats on the perimeter, it's going to be hard to do that. I'm not saying they don't have any, but it's just, it, it, it is that right now. And then when you couple that with Justin Fields, who looks like he's almost like intentionally not creating, you know, I, I don't I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but certainly doesn't look like he's like, getting out of the pocket and keeping his eyes downfield and trying to create and it's not there and then breaking off huge big runs vertically. It just doesn't look like that. It looks like it's muddy and it looks like it's messy. And so you, yeah, you know, you know, I don't know if there's an answer to say, Hey, I put that on the position coaches, you know, like, no, I put that on the entire, you know, unit of what they're trying to do as an organization. 
I think as a play caller and a game plan, you know, a coaching staff, I think, I don't know how you look at these first two weeks and don't say, hey, y'all, we are pairing this way down, way down. Like I, I would like to see like a Lincoln Riley type game plan. I want to see that play caller with like a napkin this week and just kind of say like, hey, we're going to do these 20 things. And guess what, fellas? If it works, let's call it again. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, like the, the in looked pretty good. Let's call an in again. It, and I'm not trying to like oversimplify it, but there is an element of, you know, over coaching that certainly looks like is baked into what the Chicago Bears have going on right now. And it's not just one position, as you alluded to, it's damn near every offensive unit. So I'll flip it to your experience as a coach and a play caller now. How, how hard is it for you? When you're making those decisions, especially, you know, think about someone who, in Luke Getz's case, you know, this is his first OC job in the NFL. I'm sure, you know, if you're a coach, you're an offensive coach, you dream about being a play caller at the NFL level. You know, how, how difficult is it to not call the stuff that you like the most as opposed to the stuff that might be the best for your football team? Yeah, I mean, I, I can speak anecdotally. I, I've made those mistakes before. I certainly remember designing offense thinking, oh, this would be awesome. I would love to play in this offense. Mm -hmm. And then you get out there and you're like, well, that sucks. You know, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do what I think our players do really well. And so, you know, I, I'm not sure where, where they are in their process, but I can speak, you know, also to what a lot of guys in the league, I think, usually have to deal with coaching wise is, most of these people come into their position or get this opportunity to be a play caller because of the system or organization they were at previous. So they come in with these kind of, you know, preconceived ideas about what success looks like on their side of the ball. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for them to deviate when that's all they know in the league. You know, I, if you only know West coast, if you only know wide zone, if you only know, you know, drop back in a certain way, I think it's difficult. And, you know, I, I don't think a lot of these coaches are naturally, and this is me lumping them all together, but I'm comfortable doing it. I know enough of them. I'm friends with enough of them to kind of make this assumption that, you know, they're, they're not the most adaptive cats. You know, they might have the verbiage and the lexicon to get through a job interview and say, oh, I'm very flexible and we'd be adaptive. Well, in reality, a lot of them are stuck in their ways because that's what got them the job. I mean, that makes sense too. And so you have to have a system that's adaptive. You have to be uh, have enough humility to realize you don't have all the answers to get with what your player does well and realize it in real time and make those adjustments in real time on the sideline, not even at halftime on the sideline. And it's hard. And that's why the best are, are you know, are only a handful across the league. Mm -hmm. I, I'm picking on him and I think he's a good coach and I don't want to be mean, but Gus Bradley comes to mind where there was that year a couple of years ago where the big story was, oh, the Chiefs are seeing so much, you know, split safety, too deep coverage. And the Raiders played the Chiefs twice that year. And Gus Bradley comes up, comes from Seattle. They play like 80 percent, you know, single high in that game. And I'm like, well, you know, like I'm not saying that you're going to change your defense and suddenly play too high, you know, 80 percent of the time because it's work for other teams. But you think you would at least look at that and think, mm, maybe we should try that if it's slowing down the Chiefs. I mean, that, it's a perfect example and I, and I'm, I, it's not just him that, you know, that's my experience. That's a lot of those guys. And so sometimes the, those systems don't have a lot of what I would consider are more modern baked in answers and tools mm -hmm. for quarterbacks that may be lower levels that are more used to, uh, you know, being a little bit more adaptive, being a little bit more flexible, you know, as you get into college football nowadays with the transfer portal, 
you're essentially, you know, coaching an all-star team every year. You know, mm -hmm. the, there's no more four or five years to develop these guys. They have to be ready to go week one. And so I, I think things have become a little bit more simplified for the quarterback position. And sometimes you see that, you know, the output of that is guys getting into the league and struggling with the volume. And if coaches don't have the capacity to, to thin that out and for it to make sense to a quarterback quickly, I think things can snowball on you really quickly. And it feels like that might be what's going on for Justin a little bit. Mm -hmm. So here's the impossible question for you. Uh, Bears ownership watches your video. They say, you know what? That guy looks pretty smart. We're firing Luke Getze. We're bringing in JT O'Sullivan tomorrow to be the OC and, and be the play caller of this offense. I, I'm not saying they should. Just saying this is the opportunity afforded to you. Realistically, given that you can't make major changes, let's say you have to run get same scheme, same playbook, same concepts. You can't install a brand new thing, obviously, in midseason. But if you could make a change or two changes or three changes to this Bears offense that are feasible in midseason that you think would make them better without changing the players, what would you do? Well, I mean, I think I've alluded to a lot of it right now. The first thing I would do mm -hmm. is probably not take the job. The second thing I would do is probably the to we're going to run Justin. Yep. And we're going to go, you know, every guardrails off, you know, training wheels off. We're, we're, we're doing it. And so uh, a comprehensive run game. And I want it downhill, probably gap centric. Uh, and, and we go from there. And so passing game wise, I would really, you know, I have a really candid conversation with him and say, hey, what are you comfortable with? It doesn't look like you're comfortable throwing a corner with that scissors concept. It just doesn't look like that. So what are you comfortable? Are you comfortable running, you know, air raid Y cross, you know, get on the phone with Ryan Day. I'm sure they've done this, mm -hmm. but like you have to make it applicable to Sunday. And so making sure it's, he's really comfortable with what it is. And then I would pare it down even more. And then I would pair, make the third down game plan so small that we could run that on every single down and distance. And so make it simple, make it comfortable, make make sure that Justin understands the rhythm and timing of these opportunities in the drop back game. But then I probably wouldn't tell anyone else and say, hey, we're gonna not try to drop back. We're gonna do play action. We're gonna move the launch point. Mm -hmm. We are going to do anything we can to be have Justin Fields the creator, the on the edge, the dual threat, the downhill type of guy that I think he can be and puts a lot of stress on a defense. And so be intentional with creating those opportunities, not one-offs. From there, I would say, and, and this is not me, this is me more as just like a fan, mm -hmm. but the what the Miami Dolphins are doing with motion right now, mm -hmm. if you're not hijacking that, and I know people are across the league, you are missing what's going on with football right now. And I know that they have special speed. And so I would incorporate that at full speed. It looks like when I watch their offense pre-snap, it looks as slow as they play. It looks staticky. It looks like slow motion motions. So use everything within my power to be able to gain advantage. And then the last thing I would do is I would tempo people. I don't know why people in the league refuse to kind of go all in with multiple tempos. I know why, because the offenses are so complicated. They have to do the verbiage through the headset. Mm -hmm. But I would make it simple enough that we could go crazy tempo. And I would incorporate that into the game as well. It's so funny you brought up paring down the third down offense because I was just thinking about uh, actually ironically a game against the Buccaneers in the postseason a few years ago where the Packers were playing in the postseason and they called mesh like five times in a row on third down like five straight third downs they ran mesh and 
that all the people in that Bears offensive room were in Green Bay at the time. So they think they were there for that. I, I just, you know, it, it doesn't have to be complicated. You don't have to have a million answers. Sometimes having a few answers and just getting the most out of those answers can work. Yeah, I mean, and and I don't think that, I think to your point, that's not a new idea. Mm-hmm. I just think it looks like from the outside of that building that whatever they're asking Justin to do in the drop back passing game and really the collective passing game isn't comfortable for anyone. And so paring it down, I think is an easy way to make sure that at least you lose the mental errors element of it. And I think that that would frustrate the coaches as much as anything. There are certain elements of coaching where, Hey, they've got a better guy than they, we have, they've got a beast that we just can't get past. But the element of the mental errors that, that always feels like it falls back on the coaches failing to, for the teaching to resonate with these players. Mm -hmm. When you think about other teams and of course every so many teams with young quarterbacks that that model of we're going to draft a quarterback and build around him is not going anywhere ever in the national football league is there anything you think other teams whether it be other executives hiring coaches whether it be other teams with young quarterbacks surrounding their quarterback with players is there anything you think they can learn from what's gone wrong here sure uh, i i think I think when you look across the landscape of the league, you have to, when you make the decision that you're going to play draft, play a quarterback that has got the skill set to run, you have to be comfortable calling those plays. You can't force him or ask him to not be that player. So the the guys that I think that have had success most recently, if you want to say like Jalen Hurts or even the first couple of weeks for Anthony Richardson, you know, besides for the fact that he can't get through a game, the game plans fit their strengths back to Lamar Jackson and the Greg Roman days. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's very strength centric. And so you, you can't ask him to be something that he's not. And then the other thing, and obviously every team would love to do this, but the way that the league has shifted to prioritize the speed and, and the skill set of elite wide receivers just opens up everything else. And so if you, if you, if you haven't been able to, you haven't hit at that position, you're not quite as dynamic as you want to be on the perimeter. It just makes everything else harder. And I think you've seen those things kind of help expose what the Bears are right now. Okay. Last question. Maybe the most important to you personally. Your first video on Justin Fields from week one was an hour and 10 seconds. Now, usually your your videos, your quarterback breakdowns, 25, maybe 45 minutes on the long end. Week one was an hour. Week two was an hour and 35 minutes. That's a full-length movie, essentially, on pretty bad NFL tape. The only benefit you've had so far is that you didn't have to do this from the old Soldier Field All-22 angle, which was impossible. (laughs) What is your over-under for week three, Justin Fields against the Chiefs? Are you going to run it back? I feel like you have to. And, And how long do you think this third video will be? Uh, well, I love the inside of the film junkie joke in there with the old uh, all twenty two video. That I'm still recovering from that. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm probably at the point of kind of two choices, and maybe people listening to this will help me make a decision. I'm either going to take a week off just for my own kind of mental health, like a bye week, <laughs> or I'm going to probably do every single play because I, <laughs> like, I feel like I'm missing. 
elements of just like the the ball nerd in me that wants to talk run game and it probably wouldn't be like a youtube channel video it would be probably more like a patreon video just because that's where the i know those people would be down for but you it would basically be like us sitting down as an offensive unit and going through every single play like what every player does every monday i would just do that from my standpoint and, and it would be long it would be you know we're going like godfather heat type of like <laughs> if, if some tell me it would be a tough meeting doesn't sound ideal um i i would strongly recommend if you have not already check out jt's first two videos on the bears on the qb school youtube channel but jt please plug all the various ways people can check out the work you're doing yeah the uh, the youtube channel is definitely the home of kind of the most information and then from there uh the people that are looking for even deeper dives and, and those fields videos are definitely outliers and not sustainable model. But if you'd like that type of video, the, the Patreon community is definitely more like that. It's really me trying to create the environment of what it's like in a, in a NFL quarterback room with kind of the depth that we dive into and the rabbit holes we go down. And then the, the final piece that is kind of my favorite part that I really don't spend enough time on during the season is just creating courses mm-hmm. that are a little bit more like evergreen centric uh, kind of deep, deep dives on really my favorite football topics. So I've got courses from RPOs, tempos, pass protection, how to beat every coverage, even an entire offensive system. And so those are kind of all the different places where you can find my stuff. Strongly recommend checking it out. I went through the pass protection course, went through the beat every coverage course, learned a lot about uh, all kinds of things when it comes to evaluating stuff from the NFL, um, whether you're a fan, whether you are a coach, whether you're just a football nerd like me, definitely recommend you check out everything JT is putting out there. And it's, it's been a blast. Thank you so much for coming on. And hopefully we can do it again under more auspicious circumstances next time. Absolutely. Once the Bears turn the corner, we'll have that much more to talk about. <laughs> I appreciate it, Bill. Thanks, buddy. All right, thanks so much to JT O'Sullivan. And today, I'm going to try something a little different. We talked a little bit about maybe adding something to the show. Don't really have a name for it yet, so uh, we will try and probably clip it out as well um, and see if it's interesting. But wanted to talk about a topic related to my conversation with JT that does not involve the Bears and their offensive architecture. There's a big concept that I feel is important to understanding the NFL and understanding why things do or don't make sense in the NFL that is hard to explain and doesn't always get grasped in the conversations we have about football. And that is embracing uncertainty. And it came up with the Bears last season, a really clear example of a difficult, sort of obtuse topic. And that came with the Chase Claypool trade for the Chicago Bears. So let's go back to the trade deadline last year. Ironically, the Packers, one of the teams the Bears lost to, were also interested in Chase Claypool. The Steelers wanted to move on. The Bears traded their second round pick, not the second round pick they got from the Ravens, which was going to fall later, but their own second round pick to ensure they would get Chase Claypool. And at the time, the arguments were logical in some places, not logical in other ways. The argument was that the Bears needed to trade for Chase Claypool because he would make it clear what Justin Fields was. The Bears would get the best evaluation possible for Justin Fields by adding 
Chase Claypool. And you can see some thoughtfulness in that. It hasn't worked out that way. Chase Claypool has been was injured for a bit last year, has been ineffective otherwise. And I think it's hard to make that argument feel totally fair when the Steelers had their own rookie quarterback in Kenny Pickett, who they were still figuring stuff out about, and were ready to move on from Chase Claypool, who was admittedly not the first or even second best receiver in that offense. But even given those circumstances, we were not able to find out really much more about Justin Fields after adding Chase Claypool. The argument, though, that I found easier to dismiss and more frustrating at the time was the idea that Bears fans and people who were positive about the trade were looking at what was available in free agency. Guys like Juju Smith-Schuster, Jacoby Myers, the, the expected free agents coming up, and the draft class at wide receiver, which had some exciting prospects in the first round, but then in October didn't seem like it was going to be very deep and said, well, Chase Claypool is the best receiver we can get. We have to add a receiver and trading a second round pick for Chase Claypool is better than any of the other alternatives. I'd rather have Chase Claypool than Jacoby Myers or Juju Smith-Schuster. And hey, if those are your only options, that's fair. But here's where the uncertainty element comes in. The confidence we have about how we feel about particular players moving out of one scheme to another, the confidence we have in evaluating free agents when the NFL has not been very good at evaluating free agents, the confidence we have in evaluating a draft class before it's even played the second half of the college football season, let alone gone through the draft process and made it to uh, actually appearing in NFL training camps and in NFL games, and the uncertainty about who might come available who we're not expecting. On top of all that, with Chase Claypool, when you trade for him, you're trading for him in his third season, which means he's already played two and a half years of his cost-controlled rookie contract. So you're only getting a year and a half of Chase Claypool, and you're either paying him a lot of money or moving on and giving up a second-round pick in the process who's going to make four years of cost-controlled very reasonable salaries. And even if the Bears had a cheap quarterback in Justin Fields, which they do, you can still roll that cap space over or use it on somebody else. So the best case scenario, Chase Claypool was going to be good and he was going to get paid a lot of money very quickly. In this close to worst case scenario, Chase Claypool looks like he's closer to being off the team. But to get to that uncertainty element, let's consider all the things we didn't know that have become clear or happened in reality when Chase Claypool was traded to the Bears. So since then, I'll leave Adam Thielen out of it, but DeAndre Hopkins was cut by the Cardinals and available for free for most of the offseason. Elijah Moore, the Jets' promising receiver who looked really good as a rookie and then struggled in his second season, much like Claypool, came available for, for trade and cost much less than the Bears gave up for Claypool. And I'm not sure Elijah Moore isn't the better player. Brandon Cooks came available for trade at a much lesser cost than what the Bears traded for Chase Claypool. And DJ Moore came available for trade. And we know that because the Bears themselves were able to trade for DJ Moore as part of the move down from the first overall pick. And again, could you have known any of those individual things would happen between the time of the Chase Claypool trade and the beginning of the Bears season? No, but you had to trust that some things you were not expecting to happen at wide receiver were going to happen. Just looking at the free agent pool and saying, these are the only guys we're going to have, 
based on history, is just naive. A year ago, Devontae Adams and Tyreek Hill became available for trade. Things we're not expecting to happen happen every single season. On top of that, the argument about, well, we have to add Chase Claypool because he's going to be better than any wideout we're going to be able to take with the th- with our, our second-round pick. Well, the Bears lost all of their games after trading for Chase Claypool. They were actively tanking for a worse draft pick. They had traded away several of their star players, even if you don't think they were going to lose every single game. wasn't as if they were about to make the playoffs given where they were in their rebuild. So we knew this was going to be a high second round pick. Maybe it was going to be 36 or 38 or 40 or 42. End up being 32. It was literally a first, it would be a first round pick every other year, except for the fact that Miami had a uh, lost a pick. And so um, it, it moved up from 33 to 32, ended up being a first round pick. Here are some of the wide receivers who were drafted after the 32nd overall selection, which the Steelers used on Joey Porter Jr., who looks, you know, looks promising, made a big play in Monday's win over the Browns. Um, you know, we'll, we'll wait to see, but certainly an exciting prospect. You would happily trade Chase Claypool for Joey Porter Jr. today if you were the Bears, but that's not the point. The wide receivers who were available after 32, it wasn't like they had one shot if they had just nailed the right guy. Jonathan Mingo was available. Jaden Reed was available. Rashi Rice was available. Marvin Mims, Jalen Hyatt, and of course, Puka Nakua, who was taken, I believe, in the fifth round by the Los Angeles Rams. Now, Nakua looks like an immediate superstar, which is pretty incredible. But all of those guys have already done more in their NFL careers in two weeks than Chase Claypool has done over his entire Bears career. And acknowledging Chase Claypool did catch a touchdown pass last week. You can catch the breakdown of that on JT's YouTube video about the Bears in week two. All of those guys are now under contract for the next four years on rookie deals, as opposed to Chase Claypool. Could we have known that any one of those guys would be better than Chase Claypool? No. But the vast majority of this rookie class is a more exciting option because of the cost control over four years, because of what they offer, the upside, because they look to, frankly, care more about succeeding in the National Football League than Chase Claypool does with the Chicago Bears. It's not just that they had to land on one lucky pick. The vast majority of the picks in the second, third, fourth round are players you would prefer to have than Chase Claypool right now. And so that is how uncertainty matters because the Bears being so certain that Claypool was the answer and the best possible answer they would have not only in October, but also over the ensuing offseason to fill their hole at wide receiver led them to make a very damaging decision and cost themselves major upside, both in terms of having that pick and adding wide receivers who were not Chase Claypool to the roster. So something you can learn next time we talk about trades or free agency, about how our roster is going to improve, about being confident about, say, Matthew Stafford not being better than Jalen Hurts uh, on, on Stephen Ruiz's rankings, another uncertainty thing that comes to mind. Just take it back a step. Consider that there might be things that might happen that you're not expecting. Embrace uncertainty. So that's it. Hope you guys enjoyed my my monologue. I'll have to come up with a name for it. Uh, talking about football, but 
Hope you guys enjoyed the show. Uh, JT was an awesome guest. Hope he'll be back in the future. Um, we have more audio coming, uh, plenty of football stuff to discuss every single week in the NFL. And we'll be talking about it here on the Bill Barnwell Show. So thanks so much for listening.